0: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech, though today we're going to be talking about a branch of technology that gets a, you know, pretty grim and pretty serious Uh, This is a listener request. Listener Hakim asked that I do an episode about forensic technology, so I'm actually going to do a pair of episodes. It is fascinating stuff, and it's definitely not quite the same as what we see in depictions on film or in television shows. That's not a big surprise. We've covered multiple times how technology in pop culture is very different from what we see in reality, but in this episode, I'm going to specifically focus on the history of forensics. And in the next episode, we'll talk about some of the cutting-edge technologies that are used in forensic investigations today. So forensics, first of all, has a few different definitions. If you are being very literal, it can mean debate or discussion in Latin. But as we tend to use it today, we refer to it as the science with regard to detecting and solving crimes. So not just if a crime has occurred, but how did a crime occur? How did it unfold in time? Who was involved? That sort of stuff. And like all sciences, forensics can trace its history back far before the formal codification of the scientific method. And this involves lots of different ideas and processes for different elements of investigation developing at various times throughout history. Like most things, forensics involved a lot of different ideas being tested throughout centuries before maturing as a collection of practices. So one of the easy ideas we can talk about, because there are a lot of different independent threads that converge to become forensics, Uh, one easy entry point is a discussion about fingerprints and developing the skills and technology to detect and identify them and classify them in the context of criminal investigations. Now, I've done a full episode on fingerprinting in the past, so I'll give more of a short overview of the whole thing here. There are records that actually indicate that handprints were used as evidence in investigations for burglary back in China more than 2,000 years ago, and the book with the English title Universal History, which was published in Persia in the 1300s, mentioned the practice of identifying people based upon their fingerprints. European anatomists and philosophers made observations about fingerprints in the 17th century, But those observations weren't really connected to the idea that fingerprints themselves are unique to specific individuals and that no two people would share the same ones. J.C.A. Meyer, a German anatomist, published Anatomical Copper Plates with Appropriate Explanations. That's the actual title of the book, Anatomical Copper Plates with Appropriate Explanations in 1788. Sounds like it was a rip-roaring picture book. Anyway, he described fingerprints as being unique, but also noted that they can appear similar to one another. So, in other words, on close examination, you will see that they are unique. But on casual glance, you may not be able to make that distinction easily. The 19th century saw a lot more work to define the qualities of fingerprints. And how to classify them. How would you describe the fingerprints? How would you describe the grooves in such a way that it made sense? And then how would you classify fingerprints so that you could kind of categorize them? And how would you preserve impressions of them? All of these were ideas and practices that were developed in the 1800s. By the end of that century, Mark Twain was incorporating the idea of using fingerprints to identify a murderer in a couple of his books. And right at the cusp of the 20th century, or just before 1900, you had organizations starting to build out fingerprint files for the purposes of identification. So the idea of using fingerprints to uh, to ascertain the identity of someone, you know, they've left a fingerprint behind at a scene, that had really started to take hold by the late 19th century. So as the Sherlock Holmes era. The 20th century saw a rapid development of technology in all different fields, right? We see in the 1900s crazy amounts of innovation in all sorts of industries. But that included, eventually, things like digitizing records of fingerprint files, which would allow law enforcement to create the automated fingerprint identification system. And now in the United States, the Department of Homeland Security oversees a database containing more than 120 million people's fingerprints. The FBI conducts more than 300,000 record searches per day against more than 140 million computerized fingerprint records. Uh, some of those are criminal, some of those are civil. And uh, so like civil fingerprints, you might have to submit for fingerprinting at uh, when getting a, a uh, an ID like a state issued ID for example in the United States. The world's largest database of fingerprint uh, information, not just fingerprint, but biometric in general, actually belongs to a uh, a company called the Unique Identification Authority of India. It's really more of an organization, I guess I should say. So that also includes face and biometric records. And the goal is to provide all 1.25 billion residents of India with the option to record their biometric data for the purposes of providing reliable national ID documents, Participation in that database, by the way, is voluntary. So they aren't forced to submit to this. Uh, And the citizens of India can opt into this system for the purposes of making it easier to get these kinds of national IDs. So that's the idea behind fingerprinting, this this concept of being able to look at the loops and the whorls and the various ridges and to compare them against a large database to see if there's a match there. We're very familiar with that. And like I said, I did a full episode. So if you want to learn way more about the process of fingerprinting and identification through fingerprinting, go through the Tech Stuff archives. There's an episode just about that. So let's move over to ballistics. Now, technically, ballistics is the science of projectiles and firearms. Within the context of forensics, We tend to use the term ballistics to talk about the various aspects of an investigation into a crime that included a gun being fired at least once, and a lot can go into that. One person I need to mention is a guy named Henry Goddard, and there actually were a couple of Henry Goddards, so I'm not talking about the American psychologist who advocated for intelligence testing in the early 20th century. I'm instead talking about a 19th century member of London's Bow Street Runners. And holy cow, this is a group that needs coverage in a show like Ridiculous History. Not because it's ridiculous, but because it is fascinating. This is one of those things where I had heard about the Bow Street Runners, but I hadn't really looked into it. And by the way, if someone comes in to tell me that, no, it's Bow Street in London, Bow Street, not Bow Street, I apologize. That's my American ignorance showing through. I'm going to go with Bow Street because that's just how I assumed it was pronounced. But I fully admit I could be wrong. So quick history lesson leading up to the late 1700s. It was customary in London that if you happened to be a man, you were expected to participate in the policing of your own community. So if you saw a crime being committed, you were expected to intervene in that crime and apprehend the perpetrator and convict that person. Uh, You were also expected to serve time in the night watch, which meant that uh, between the hours of, say, 8 or 9 p.m. and dawn, you would have to patrol streets and make sure that that there were no suspicious people lurking about uh, or that if anyone was seen on the streets, that they had a valid reason to be out there and they weren't up to no good. And a lot of people were starting to get a little nervous about this because by the 1700s, you had a new class that had formed in London. And previously, you had the commoners and you had the nobility. And that was the way of things in, uh, the, in England for quite some time. Uh, and then by the Renaissance, you were starting to see the, the rise of the middle class. And by the 1700s, you had the upper middle class. You had people who were wealthy. They weren't noble, but they owned a lot of wealth. Whereas you had nobility that were, they had noble titles, but some of them weren't very wealthy at all. So this really created confusion in England, where for the longest time, social status was based upon nobility and nobility tended to bring wealth along with it. Anyway, you had these upper class folks in London, men, who were not terribly keen on the idea of having to patrol their city streets and getting involved in altercations that could involve violent criminals. You think, I didn't work so hard to become so successful to potentially get my skull caved in by a, 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 a villain with a club. So I'm going to hire someone to go in my place. And people started to hire deputies. Well, around the same time, royal proclamations had created a reward system for people who helped keep the peace by convicting criminals of various crimes, uh, including various thefts. So this gave rise to an unofficial occupation called thief-taker. Thief-takers would often not just make money by pursuing convictions of criminals, but also essentially selling back stolen property to the rightful owners. So they would get money by putting the thief behind bars and get more money by selling the stolen property back to the person who owned it in the first place. So then you had uh, Henry and John Fielding, and they had a house on Bow Street. Henry Fielding started to pay retainers to men who were either constables or ex-constables to locate and arrest criminals, particularly violent criminals. And if you did that, you were entitled to the reward. So if you were one of the members of the Bow Street Runners, and you apprehended someone, you convicted that person of a crime, you would get the reward there. And the Fieldings hoped that what they could do is manage this group and rein in any corruption to keep things on the level, and they essentially became a private police force of sorts. And over time, they developed processes and procedures that would become the foundation of modern policing in many ways. Now, Goddard, who I had mentioned before, Uh, was one of these Bow Street Runners or policemen. And he identified a murderer in 1835 by linking a bullet recovered from a victim to the person who made the bullet. Because in those days, most people who owned guns made their own bullets. You did this by pouring molten lead into a two-piece mold to set it into that mold, and then you would, you know, forge a bullet. Goddard saw in the bullet an imperfection that he reasoned was from the manufacturing process, which meant the mold itself would have evidence of that fault. And if you were to mold another bullet with that mold, you should be able to replicate the fault in it. So Goddard was able to get a confession from the suspect and won a conviction. It was only later that people pointed out his approach was not necessarily the most scientific, as similar molds could have produced a similar-looking bullet— but it was an early example of ballistics and forensics, it's just it wasn't a terribly scientifically solid one. But you flash forward a century later, and then you have Calvin Goddard, But no relation to Henry Goddard, whom I just talked about. Calvin Goddard was a scientist, a researcher, and a military officer. And in 1925, he wrote an article titled Forensic Ballistics and described using a special type of microscope he had created called a comparison microscope when examining side-by-side specimens. Now, essentially, a comparison microscope is two light microscopes connected by an optical bridge. So there are two, uh, uh, Ocular lenses, two eyepieces. So you look in one with each eye. It looks almost like binoculars, except it's a microscope. And it meant that you could put a sample under one and a sample under the second one and compare the two in a single view. And he used it to compare bullet casings or bullet shells and bullets recovered from crime scenes. And by being able to see both a bullet and its casing, he could verify whether or not the bullet actually belong to that casing by the markings. He could also, if say you had recovered a firearm from a suspect and you were wondering if it was the same firearm as the one used in a crime, you could fire that into a soft target, retrieve the bullets, compare them side by side. So uh, that would allow you to look at them in real time next to each other at a microscopic level. Previously, what you would have to do is look at one, like the actual one that was found at the scene of a crime, and make note of any uh, indentations or markings on the bullet and then you would look at a second one separately. But that meant you had to rely upon your memory in part to make this comparison, and memories are faulty. So his technology would end up playing a vital role in several early 20th century investigations, including the investigation into the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Goddard was able to prove that the bullets that were fired in that crime did not come from police guns because the men who committed the murders were wearing Chicago police uniforms when they did it. But they said, well, no, these didn't come from the guns that belonged to police officers. Later on, they were able to discover a gun that belonged to a mobster that did match the bullets that were fired during the St. Valentine's Day massacre. So it was one of the guns used in that terrible, terrible event. They figured out it wasn't vigilante justice at all, it was a mob hit based upon the evidence. Goddard would be asked to become the head of the first independent forensic science crime lab, which was at Northwestern University in 1929. The lab later became known as the Scientific Crime Detection Laboratory of Chicago. Very influential lab. Now I've got a lot more to say about forensic science and its development over the years, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. One of the many things a ballistics expert in forensic studies would uh, look at would be those marks left on a bullet after it has been fired from a gun. Modern guns have rifling in the barrels, which refers to grooves that are inside the barrel. They're meant to produce torque on a bullet, which forces the bullet to spin as it travels down the barrel and it continues spinning when it emerges because a spinning projectile has a much more stable flight path due to behaving like a gyroscope. I talked about gyroscopes in recent episodes of Tech Stuff. Essentially, because of the conservation of angular momentum, an object spinning around an axis of rotation resists changes in its orientation. So a spinning bullet will remain more true to its flight path than a projectile fired from a smoothbore firearm, which has no rifling on the inside of its gun barrel. But passing down this grooved path essentially carves a pattern on a bullet. A bullet's diameter is slightly larger than the bore diameter of the barrel it is fired through. The bullet is of a softer material, so it will end up getting a pattern carved into it as, it, as, as it's forced down this barrel at high velocity and begins to go into the spin. Investigators can actually count the number of grooves or impressions around the circumference of the bullet, and by looking down the length of a bullet from behind the investigators can determine the twist direction of the rifling grooves inside the barrel. In this part of a gun, a barrel, can wear down after use. That means that the patterns will end up being unique to specific guns. Even if you have two guns that are the same make and model, the wear pattern is going to be different for both of those. So you will end up having different patterns actually imparted to the bullets fired out of those guns. So if investigators can retrieve bullets from a scene, they can potentially match those bullets to a specific firearm, assuming they also have possession of that firearm to compare the two. Or they can use the patterns to potentially eliminate firearms that could not have produced those patterns. So like I said before, the way you would typically do this is you have the suspect firearm, you fire it a few times, uh, and you fire it into, into a target that will preserve the integrity of the bullets. It's not designed to have the bullet break apart. So that way you have as good a sample as you possibly can. You compare the patterns on that bullet to the one that you have retrieved from the crime scene, and you look and see if the they are in fact similar enough to say they were both fired from the same weapon. Uh... Firearms also produce marks on cartridge cases, and no two firearms will do so exactly the same way. So cartridges will bear markings. They're different from rifling markings. They they'll, they might have something like a firing pin impressions, breech marks, extractor marks, and ejector marks, depending upon the type of firearm you're talking about. Surface characteristics created on the firearm itself from use will give it a uniqueness that other firearms won't reproduce. That's that wear and tear I was telling you about. Uh, but firearms also don't change super quickly, right? They do wear down over time, but it's not super, super fast. Even if two are the same make and model, you're gonna have slight differences, like I said before, but they don't change so fast that you have to worry about identifying a gun well after a crime is committed. Uh, let's say that you have retrieved a bullet from a, case, uh, the, from a crime scene And let's say it's a cold case, like it's the case has gone cold and it's essentially shelved. And then later on, you come across somebody and you're like, I like this guy for that crime we never solved, you know, 15 years ago. And this guy even has a gun that would have fired the bullets. It's the same style of gun that we suspect fired the bullets that we retrieved at that scene. Even though 15 years have passed, you can fire that suspect's gun and you can compare it against the bullet you retrieved from the crime scene. And chances are, there won't be so much wear and tear, assuming it is the same gun, that you would be able to say, oh, it's the exact same firearm. So if you fire a gun once and you retrieve the bullet, then you fire it 99 more times and you retrieve the 100th bullet, there should still be enough similarities between bullets one and 100 for you to say they both definitely came from the same gun. In addition to studying bullets to determine if they were fired from a specific firearm, forensic investigators also examine bullet holes left at scenes to figure out where the person firing the gun was standing and how tall he or she was based on the evidence. The shape of a bullet hole gives us a lot of information. So some people might think, oh, bullet holes are going to be round. Well, that's not true unless the person firing the gun is firing at perfectly level, at a 90 degree angle to whatever the surface is that that ends up being hit by the bullet. Otherwise, you're gonna get an elliptical shape from the bullet hole. And that elliptical shape will tell you a lot. It's, it's angled, it, it'll show that the bullet hit the wall at a bias. So you can determine the angle from which the bullet entered the wall. And if you have a suspect, you can use geometry to determine if that suspect could have been responsible. Uh, Not necessarily if they did or didn't do it, but you can at least say, well, is it possible that they did it? This is where you look at, say, bullet holes in a wall. You determine the angle from where the bullet entered the wall. You figure out where, what distance from the wall the shooter was. And you say, well, if the shooter was five foot 10, this makes sense. But if you start getting too short or too tall from that, then it wouldn't, the angle doesn't make any sense based upon what we know. So let's say that you've got a, four foot three inch tall suspect, you might say, well, there's no way this person's too short for that to have worked out the way we believe it did. So those bullet holes can tell you a lot of information, uh, but you have to use geometry in order to do it, which means I would be really bad at it. I was terrible at geometry. It's great at trigonometry, but not so much at geometry. Anyway, these days, investigators may use advanced technologies like laser scanners to get really precise information from a crime scene in order to create a simulation to to view um, things like the the angle of fire and the distance and that sort of stuff. I'll talk more about that in the next episode, however. Other science and technology that relates to crimes in which a gun was fired might include detecting residue from gunshots. By the 1970s, scientists had started using scanning electron microscopes to do that. I'll also talk about scanning electron microscopes in the next episode and talk about how those work. It's pretty fascinating stuff. But forensics goes beyond fingerprints and ballistics. In the 1830s, there was a chemist named James Marsh who developed a chemical test. We call it the Marsh Test. And it was specifically to detect the presence of arsenic. And he developed the test after he determined the prevailing methodology was inferior after a pretty upsetting incident in his life. It all had to do with a murder trial. In 1832, there was a man who stood accused of having murdered his grandfather by poisoning his granddad's coffee with arsenic. And James Marsh was called upon to do an investigation and present his findings to court. And he was meant to test the coffee for arsenic. Now, the standard at the time was that you would pass hydrogen sulfide through a sample fluid. And that would create a reaction that would release hydrogen. The hydrogen would carry particles of arsenic as it bubbled up through the sample, and it's in gas form, so it passes through, you know, it will it would just dissipate if you didn't have anything else attached to it, but you would have your, your device set up so that the gas is passing through a line, like a glass tube, for example, and you would heat the tube. And you would also burn off the hydrogen as it came out the other end of the tube, and traces of arsenic would remain as a precipitate that would be collected, and you could use it, uh, what they would call an arsenic mirror. It would create this sort of blackish uh, uh, finish on a surface. But the problem was it wouldn't keep indefinitely. So Marsh conducts this test. He detects arsenic in the coffee. But by the time he was called to present to the jury... The evidence he had collected had deteriorated, and it deteriorated to the point where the jury didn't see the evidence. So they, the suspect was ultimately released of charges. And Marsh figured there had to be a better way, so he developed what we now call the Marsh test. And he stuck with a chemical reaction approach. He experimented, and he found that if he combined a sample that had arsenic in it, and he put that in with some zinc that had no arsenic in it at all, arsenic-free zinc, and then added sulfuric acid, it would create arsene gas. And burning off that gas would produce pure metallic arsenic. And if that were to come in contact with a cold surface, it would leave behind a silvery black coating. And it was a sensitive enough test that it could detect quantities of arsenic as small as 1 50th of a milligram, which is pretty nifty. Now, if there were no arsenic in the sample, you wouldn't produce this gas. So you wouldn't have that silvery residue. So chemical analysis is another important part of forensic science. And arsenic is just one of dozens of different chemicals investigators might have to search for at a crime scene. Um, Another important element in forensics has to do with blood. Clearly, that becomes a very important element in and investigations. Uh, during the 19th century, Dr. Ludwig Karl Teichmann developed a test to determine if a stain actually was dried blood or maybe it's mud or something else. And this is a test we call the Teichmann test. Tend to name things after the people who propose them. So Dr. Teichmann researched how organic compounds contained in human blood could crystallize. One of those compounds is called hemin. And so Teichmann developed a test in which he used a, a strong acetic acid, which is present in stuff like vinegar, for example. And you combine that with dried blood and that would form hemin crystals. The reaction between the acetic acid and the blood would make these hemin crystals form. So if you're investigating a crime and you see some stains that could be dried blood, but you're not sure, you could use the Teichmann test and confirm that suspicion. Uh, it doesn't tell you what type of blood it is. It doesn't let you classify it in any way, but it would let you at least verify that, in fact, the stain you're looking at is composed, at least in part, by blood. So if no hemen crystals formed as a result, you could disregard the stain and just say, well, I don't know what it is, but it sure ain't blood. In 1901, an Austrian scientist named Karl Landsteiner was studying blood and why sometimes when blood from one individual would be given to another individual the blood would clump together in a process called agglutination. The clumping could create toxic reactions, which made transfusions really dangerous. And physicians had been practicing transfusions for quite some time, but no one was really sure up to that point why some transfusions seemed to work and other transfusions would lead to pretty nasty outcomes, sometimes death. Uh, Landsteiner discovered that the clumping was an immunological reaction, And it was when the receiver of a blood transfusion has antibodies against uh, components inside the donor blood. And that led to the discovery of different protein molecules within different types of blood and ultimately led to classifying blood into groups such as A, B, AB, and O. So if you have type A blood, you have A antigens and B antibodies, meaning you can accept A blood but you cannot accept B blood because you would react very poorly to that. Um, B blood is the opposite. You have B antigens and A antibodies. And then AB, you have both A and B antigens and antibodies. You're, you're the universal receiver. You can receive blood from any donor. And then type O, you lack the antigens and antibodies. You're the universal donor, or you really you don't have the antigens. So you don't have to worry about Uh, Like, if you're an O-Donor, you can donate blood to anyone. Anyone can accept O-Blood, though you can only accept O-Blood in return. Fun times. Len Steiner would win a Nobel Prize in 1930 for his work, and forensic scientists had a new way to examine blood to help them narrow down suspects or differentiate between a victim's blood and the blood of a suspect. Uh, Up to that point, you couldn't be sure. You might come up on a crime scene, and there might be blood on the crime scene, but you don't know how much of that belonged to the victim and, and if what, if any, of it belonged to someone else. This allowed for testing of different proteins, which would tell you, oh, this is a type A versus type B, and would tell you if more than one person's blood were present at a crime scene. So very useful, especially later on when you are looking at potentially identifying someone. Although, keep in mind, the percentages of people with specific types of blood are such that you can't narrow it down to a specific individual. Just because a person might have the same blood type as blood found at the scene of a crime doesn't necessarily mean that the blood came from that person because lots of people have those blood types. It would take more specific evidence to be able to narrow that down. I'll talk more about that in a second, but first let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. In 1928, H.O. Albrecht was experimenting with a chemical called luminol, a luminescent chemical. And he was experimenting with it in a solution of hydrogen peroxide. And he discovered that blood would increase the luminescence of luminol, which means it it would cause the luminol to glow brighter. Later, other scientists determined that hematin, a pigment in blood that contains iron in it, was reacting with this luminol chemically. And that chemical reaction was creating this brighter luminescence. And that became useful in forensic investigations when investigators were looking for trace amounts of blood at a scene. It may not be easily visible or it may be that someone tried to clean it up because luminol can actually detect those trace evidence uh, uh, leavings of blood even if someone tried to clean stuff up. It does require making the crime scene as dark as possible so you can detect the luminescence. And the glow lasts for less than a minute. But if you do a quick spritzing of luminol and hydrogen peroxide as a solution uh, against the same spot, it will glow again. It doesn't exhaust the supply of iron necessarily on one spritzing. So uh, if you see a glow, you can reapply. By the 1980s, scientists were starting to develop practical tests that could analyze DNA for the purposes of forensic tests. And DNA is deoxyribonucleic acid, which is the carrier of genetic information. I'm pretty sure you all are familiar with that, but it always is good to just kind of jump on that again. DNA contains the fundamental genetic identifiers that can be of crucial importance in an investigation. Now, most of your DNA matches my DNA, or the person in closest proximity to you, or the person most far away from you possible. We share an enormous amount of common DNA. The differences between individuals, between humans, are carried by about three million bases in our DNA. That's equivalent to about one-tenth of one percent of all our DNA. So the vast majority of our DNA is identical to each other. It's only that one-tenth of one percent that makes you you, which is kind of cool and, and interesting. Uh, those differences can help eliminate a suspect from an investigation, or it can help support a case for investigating the matter further if there's a match. DNA comes from organic material like blood or body fluids, uh, from skin, from hair, stuff like that. The development of polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, techniques helped with DNA investigations a lot. PCR is a a method for copying specific DNA regions in vitro, that means in a test tube, as opposed to in an organism. PCR is used for lots of different stuff, not just forensic investigations, because it allows you to copy and duplicate DNA, but in forensics, it can be used to make copies of sample DNA for analysis to compare DNA gathered at a crime scene uh, with DNA from, like, a suspect. Some crime scenes may only have small samples of DNA that you can work with, so it's important to be able to duplicate that DNA in order for you to have enough of a sample size to run your various analyses. In 1989, DNA evidence was used to exonerate a man named Gary Dotson, who had been convicted of rape in the late 1970s. Kathleen Crowell, who was the presumed victim of this crime, ended up later saying she had actually made up a story about being raped. What had happened was that she and her boyfriend had engaged in consensual sex, but she was worried that she might end up pregnant. And she was terrified of what that would mean. She was a teenager at the time. She was scared about how her parents and community would react. And preemptively, she made the claim that she had been assaulted by a group of three men and raped by one of them. And she just made it up entirely. Uh, She was brought in to the police station to talk to police officers who wanted to get a sketch artist there to get a a sketch of her her, uh, presumed, Uh, attacker. And so she started making up a description. Uh, The description she made up happened to kind of resemble someone who was in a collection of mugshots at that police station. And it was a guy named Gary Dotson who had run afoul of the law previously. But she had made this whole story up. It just so happened that the person that she was describing happened to look like this guy. Now, according to Crowell, the police pressured her into identifying Dotson as her rapist, and she was still scared of telling the truth to anyone, so she went along with it. Dotson would end up being tried and convicted of rape and sent to prison, and Crowell would later recant her accusation in 1985. She said she was overcome with guilt about what she had done to him and that she had decided that it was enough was enough. She had to come forward and tell the truth. And... Uh, Prosecutors weren't too eager to do that. They, I guess, partly were worried that it was going to reflect really poorly on them. The trial had included testimony from various forensics experts, and it would mean that they were either fabricating evidence or very much misidentifying things and that uh, it was going to look terrible to them. So anyway, a judge ended up releasing Dotson on a $100,000 bond. But Dotson wasn't truly exonerated until DNA tests in 1989 proved that he wasn't involved. So, in other words, his accuser had come back up and said, I made it all up. He didn't do anything to me. I was scared. And I came up with this story that I thought was going to help things. I did not intend for this to happen. And some of the legal community dismissed her statement. They said, oh, she's unstable. She's, you can't rely upon her statements. And it wasn't until the DNA evidence came out that said Dotson could not have been the person that was accused of this crime because his DNA did not match the DNA that was gathered uh, in the wake of her accusation. The whole story, by the way, goes into way more crazy detail and, and there are a lot more twists and turns and a lot of tragedy involved in it as well. It's sad. It's an infuriating story. There's an excellent treatment of the story over at Northwestern University's uh, Pritzker School of Law website. It has the title First DNA Exoneration. So if you want to read all about it, and it is an exhaustive account, uh, you should check that out because it is fascinating as well as upsetting. The emergence of DNA led to the development of quality control guidelines for DNA labs and forensic investigators. It became clear that in order to make effective use of this information, of this knowledge of DNA, they had to make sure they created very straightforward, very uh, standardized approaches to, to reduce the possibility of destroying or altering evidence either by accident or on purpose. You know, do something where you can document it step by step by step so people can make certain that you did everything correctly so that your conclusions can be seen as valid. Now, while these sciences and processes were developing, uh, police forces and other law enforcement agencies were actually working to formalize the development and deployment of investigations. How do you teach investigators these these processes? Because a lot of them were developed independently. They were being made use in specific police forces, but they weren't necessarily shared. How did that come about? Well, in the 19th century, if you were in the 1800s and you were a forensic researcher, you were connected to some sort of law enforcement group, whether private or public, you were essentially self-taught. You got hold of whatever information you could find And you would study it or you would develop your own ideas and your own processes. It was very informal. Uh, One of the earliest formal schools in forensics was created by a guy named Rudolf Archibald Rice. He was a professor at the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. He had studied chemistry at that university. He earned a doctorate in the field, and he began turning his scientific mind toward criminal investigation. He studied the discoveries of other criminologists, and in 1909, he founded the Institute of Scientific Police. Other universities in Europe began to found their own forensic studies curricula, but then you had World War I and World War II, and that wiped out a lot of those efforts. The Institute of Scientific Police survived the two world wars because Switzerland was neutral in both of those. Today, this school has a different name. It's called the School of Criminal Sciences. It's the same organization, new name. I mean, obviously updated with the more modern approaches. Rice, in his time, would actually publish a book about investigative techniques used in the event of burglaries and homicides. And he had planned future volumes to cover Other types of crimes, like counterfeiting, as well as other police matters, like organizing a police force. But he ended up putting all of that on hold. The Serbian government requested his assistance to investigate war crimes committed by the armies of Austria-Hungary during the Serbian War. And so he never finished those books. In 1924, an American named August Vollmer who was chief of police in Los Angeles, California, founded the first American police crime laboratory, which actually predated the FBI's crime lab by eight years. The FBI was formed in 1908, but it would not have its own crime lab till 1932. It was the early 1930s when colleges and universities began offering degrees in police sciences and criminalistics. And in 1950, the University of California at Berkeley created an early department of criminology, Over in Chicago, around that same time, academics founded the American Academy of Forensic Science. And today, there are numerous colleges that offer coursework in forensic science. There are labs dedicated to the purpose of applying the scientific method when it comes to the investigation of crime. And there are companies that produce technology with the primary purpose of aiding in criminal investigations. And in our next episode, I will take a closer look at some of those actual technologies, some really cool ones though they may not be exactly the same as what we see in television and film. That's it for this episode. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, maybe it's a technology, maybe it's a person or a company you want me to cover, send me a message. Uh, Email's great. Uh, the email address you can use is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget, we have a merchandise store. It's at tpublic.com. That's teepublic.com. That's T E E Maybe you've always wanted a techstuff tote bag or a phone case or a coffee mug. Well, you can get those and more at tpublic.com slash techstuff. We have a lot of different designs up there. Every purchase you make goes to help the show and you get something cool in return. So we really appreciate it. And don't forget, follow us on Instagram, please. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.